All right, good morning. I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be back with you all after being in Knoxville last week. If you would be turning in the scripture to Revelation chapter 5, we will cover chapter 5 this morning. And just as a reminder, something new that we're doing, uh, after I read through the chapter, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond with... Some of you got it, and some of you will catch up, and so I have great hope for you. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, remembering that uh, Revelation says very clearly, blessed is the one who reads it, and blessed is the one who hears and lives these things out. So let's be those people this morning. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. All right, as we step into this, this is a continuation from chapter four last week. This is the heavenly throne room vision. And remember, in the book of Revelation, it's important to orienteer where you are. We went from the letters to the churches, which is kind of the situation on earth. And if you remember the letters to the churches, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Five of the seven churches have things going on that aren't good. Two of them were praised, and they were the two smallest, and one of them wasn't doing much of anything good at all. And so that was the earthly circumstance, and yet worship continued in heaven. Despite the earthly circumstance, the true reality is that God reigns. The true reality is that Christ is the lamb who was slain for the life of the world. And so it's important that John was ushered before he gets any of the, the stranger visions or the more difficult visions that will come in the book of Revelation, just in terms of the impact on the earth itself, the judgment that will come. Uh, as, it, as it is unleashed on different things, uh, as people are are. God is trying to shake them to say, I love you. You cannot continue in sin. You must. You must recognize that I reign and I am in covenant with you and there are things that you ought to do and ways in which you ought to live that should reflect my glory. And so before he gets to all that, we get this wonderful vision of this incredible worship service to remind us that the greatest resistance that we have, the way to push back the darkness is to worship is to continue to declare that God reigns and that Christ is king uh, in a world who has no interest in any of those things. Not naturally. It just doesn't come natural. It's an oddity. 
And so this continues that vision. And I love the way that Leon Morris uh, makes this observation uh, in his book on the Revelation of St. John. He says, chapter four recorded a vision of God, the creator. Now comes a vision of God, the redeemer, the lamb who conquered through his death. The last chapter ended with the scene of worship of the creator and this one will end with the worship of the redeemer. And so what we see is this is, this is Christ being declared divine. The only people who are worshipped are those who are divine. If you note other places uh, in Revelation where an angel shows up and John tries to fall down and worship him because he's a glorious creature to behold, what does the angel always say? No, 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 you're not to worship me. Your worship is for God and Christ alone. And so um, what we have is this wonderful recognition. And it's so odd to me the people who say Christ never saves God. Yeah, but God did. And Christ did too. But God definitely says it, and so does his word. But how, what's interesting about this particular chapter is when John weeps because the story, he doesn't see an ending to the story. So the question I have for us as we begin, uh, and we remember that Advent is not just a season of celebration, it's also a season of longing. It's this tension of the now and the not yet, right? We give great thanks and we feast over the fact that Christ has come and he will come again. We give thanks for the fact that we are redeemed, but also we recognize that things are not yet put right, that there's still much that is broken and wrong, and so it's a season of longing. So how does the end of the story affect your view of the story? Well, I can make this easy. How many of you watched Lost, the show? How many of you at the ending wanted to rip your eyelids off? Well, that's probably strong. That's probably too strong for a network TV show, let's be honest. But people were angry. The way something ends uh, has an extreme impact. And I think I've shared this before. I, when uh, Lord of the Rings came out as a movie, went with great ignorance, not knowing uh, that this was not the only film. So when it ended, I, in great anger, yelled at the screen. And my wife was like, what are you doing? I was like, this was a complete waste of money. No story ends like this. This is trash. She was like, well, you know there's two more coming, right? <laughs> no, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know. But think about our story. Without, without a good, good end, without all things being made new, how would that affect our view of God and Christ and this story? If the devil wins in the end, or if it's even up for grabs and not already declared, if we are hanging over the abyss, right, caught between two worlds, how does that affect how we view the story? Versus knowing that Christ reigns at current, knowing that the victory has been won, and it's just God's taking his sweet time telling this great story of that reality in real time, as well as it playing out in the worship of eternity. So how the story ends matters a whole bunch. Let's turn back to the text for a moment and look at the first four verses and how it should cause us to yearn to know and participate in the end of the story. God's word says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Let me pause just a moment. Who is it that's sitting on the throne based on the previous chapter? It's God who is sitting on the throne. Right, And the scroll that he has in his hand, and we've mentioned this before, the book of Revelation, it's critical for you to know a whole bunch about the Old Testament to be able to appreciate all that Revelation is saying. Now, being that we're doing a chapter at a time, I haven't dove real deep into all that just because we just don't have time because every chapter has multiple references. But this one, for your edification, if you'd like to read it, is Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3. There's a scroll that's important to understanding that this is, that scroll is God's telling of the story. It's his, not just telling of the story in the way that it's a book, it's his divine edict. Much like in creation, he spoke creation into being. He also speaks redemption into being. And his word is strong. His word is true. His word is incontrovertible. You can't change it. And so what he holds in his hand is the end of the story. 
And it's sealed with seven seals. Now, the significance of that oftentimes with numbers in the book of Revelation is they are tied more to um, uh, probably a metaphor of some sort. Seven is perfection. So it's the perfect end of the story. God has spoken it. It is, in essence, finished. But John, John longs to hear it. The, he knows that the world needs to hear how God has written this particular story. And notice as it goes on, it says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now notice what the qualification is not. It's not power. As the world understands power, that becomes very important for the book of Revelation because what do we normally think makes one worthy? Strength and power and might. Well, let's go back to chapter 4. What was it that was sung so beautifully around the throne about the one who was seated on the throne? Holy, holy, holy. And so the question of worthiness here is who is like God? Who is holy and able to put their hand to this story, not just to open it so it's revealed, but to bring it to pass, to make it actually happen? So that is critical to us that we understand that, that Christ, who could have come with a sword in his fist, came instead with a sword from his mouth. Christ, who could have come and slaughtered all manner of his enemies in the blink of an eye. Do remember in Gethsemane when, uh, and I think it maybe is, is John or Luke's account, when they, when they ask, you know, who is it? Uh, that he says, who is it that you seek? And they say, well, it's Jesus. And he says, I am. And you remember, they all fall down just at the words, I am. And at that point, he, I love it. Uh, he has to go, okay, get up. It's how the story goes, just get up, okay? Uh, and they get up, and they're like, oh, okay. Uh, but I love, it's such a beautiful picture of how just even the declaration of who he is causes people to bow and recognize they are in the, mid, they are in the presence of true power, a power that is willing not to kill them, but to die for them. And so the angel in asking who is worthy to open this is saying who is like God and notice the answer. This great sorrowful silence in all of heaven and earth and even under the earth it says and no one in heaven. So what does that mean? Who's out? So not even the angels. These powerful beings that strike fear in our hearts when we would see them, cause people, that cause people just by their presence to fall down in a different way than Christ does. Uh, who, who, if you remember, I love this, this story in the Old Testament um, when uh, they encounter the angel of the Lord as they're about to, to uh, go take, um, uh, go across the Jordan. You remember, it was an angel with a sword in his fist. And, and they, hey, who, uh, whose side are you on? I love his answer, neither. That's a bad question. Whose side are you on? Because there's only one side. And it is, it is God who reigns over all things, who brings all things to pass, who is sovereign over history, which is why it is we have this vision of God seated on the throne. That is an evidence of his sovereignty. It is why God is the one who has the scroll in his hand because he is sovereign and omnipotent over it. We have to remember that. That's one of the great ringing bells of the book of Revelation because as we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, think of how quickly we question God's sovereignty. Think of how the moment you get a diagnosis, the moment you get that bad news, the moment that the struggle rises beyond your capacity, which is frequent if we're honest, What's the first thing that we ask? What's the first thing that we question? What's the first thing that we challenge? Always, God's sovereignty, God's power in some form or fashion. So we have here is a declaration of that. And so there's no one in heaven, so none of the angels, no one on the earth, no created being, or under the earth, which is more than likely a reference to those who've come before. So maybe there was somebody in history and history just, they, they died, but, but if we could raise them from the dead, they could open this. So uh, this covers all of created history. There is no one who is worthy, which is a great theological statement of our condition, is it not? This is Romans 3. This is Psalm 14, which is quoted in Romans 3. This is the declaration that there is none who is worthy. 
There is none who is righteous in and of themselves. Which God could leave it there and be perfectly just, by the way. He could, because we not only are imputed with the sin of Adam or granted it by virtue of our flesh, we have participated with a high hand on a number of occasions. And so there's no way for us to be clean in either form or fashion. And so this great sorrowful silence, this lack of answer causes John in verse four, and it says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, why would John weep? Well, because he understands that if God doesn't put redemption into motion, if it is not God who saves, then we are the most to be pitied. Then we have no hope whatsoever. If there is no one worthy to accomplish what God has determined, and here's what's interesting about this, is this also shows us that God is inviting us Uh, inviting his creation into the story to be participants. Now, without Christ, we don't get to participate. And God could just up and do it himself. And in fact, he chooses to use Christ as a man, as a lamb who's slain for the life of the world to create his church. The way in which he goes about doing what he does, if you notice, is always a call to inclusion and participation. He's always saying, join me in this story. And so often, we don't really want to know this, but we're caught up with the tyranny of the urgent. And I understand that. I do. Uh, I, I had children once, and so I understand what it feels like to be caught in this swiftly flowing stream. But that's why Sabbath, worship, us uh, uh, acknowledging the way that God designed things is our true resistance. For us to work with the grain of how he made us instead of against it is very important. And so worship is the means by which we resist, to take the time, right? Because, you know, it's funny, I was, I was at Redeemer in Knoxville, and uh, Sean Slade, I, I, and I've heard him say this a couple of times because I've listened to some of his sermons. He always says, he always thanks the congregation for showing up, and he goes through this, this, this I'm going to use the term spiel, but not in a derogatory way, but he, he goes through a variety of things like, hey, I know you could be doing a lot, th- a lot of better stuff. Like in your mind, right? There's a lot of things you could be doing, but you've chosen to hang out with us and and I appreciate that. It was kind of a neat thing to hear him go through and acknowledge that, hey, I get it. But also on the other side though, we need to recognize the great value of worship, that something in fact does take place and that it is worthy of our time and we've done a poor job in so many senses, even in our own hearts and minds of cultivating that idea. It is not my responsibility to convince you or change your heart about worship. It is your discipleship. It is incumbent upon you to to fight for it, knowing that all of the world, everything else is competing and trying to take you away from it. If I'm Satan, and I'm not, uh, but if I'm Satan and I'm limited, you got to remember he's limited in his power and gifting. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. Yes, he's got a huge army. But if I was going to, if I only have so many ways in which I can rob you of something and I need to get the most bang for my buck, where would you come after you? I'm going to hit you right here. I'm going to try to make you feel nothing or see this as a giant waste of time or not trust in anything that God said would actually work. Later this, this morning, we will dine at a table that's it's not the most fulfilling meal you're ever going to have in terms of substance. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's also, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that goes on well beyond our, what we know, right? The Spirit is bringing us before the throne, and, and there's stuff going on, and you're like, I don't, I don't really feel elevated. I don't feel like I levitate. I don't feel like I moved closer to anything. But that's judging by the wrong set of things. That's to forget and fail to cultivate God's promises, that are true, and that he is who he says he is, right? And so for John, he wants to see the beautiful, beloved end of the story that's been promised from the start, that God would make all things new, that he would redeem things. Those those images are in the Old Testament as well. Isaiah is full of declarations of God's uh, making all things new. 
uh, in, in restoring his people. So John is longing for the end of the story. He wants to join in that wonderful chorus, that wonderful process by which things will truly be made new. Hear what Dennis Johnson says about this. He says, if the scroll stays sealed, the consequences are even more serious than the confusion of the churches. The opening of the scroll would be not only an act of revelatory disclosure, but also an act of executive authority. That means because it is God's word and he is sovereign over all things and he is omniscient, omnipotent, all of those things that are the character of God, that it's not just a word spoken, it is a word done. What an amazing thing. So it's, it's an issue of executive authority and it goes on to say, Carrying its edicts and actions, the things written in the scroll must take place because they constitute God's plan for history, culminating in the vindication of his servants and unchallenged establishment of his dominion on earth as it is in heaven. The strong angel's question is not merely who is worthy to reveal God's plan, but also who is worthy to carry out God's plan. So the question that I have for you, especially since Advent is a season of longing, right? should we long all year? Yeah, but there's just unique spaces in time where it helps for us to focus for a bit more than, than we do. But it says, so my question for you is, what makes you yearn to know the end of the redemptive story? And, and remember, to know from a biblical perspective is not just knowledge. It's transformative. It's that which you join into. So the question really is, what makes you yearn to participate in and be a part of the bringing to pass the end of the redemptive story that has already been declared? For me, so often, it is being able to uh, walk in the darkness. What? Not just myself, not sinfully myself, but to step down into the places where people are hurting, where people are lost, and to declare the things that Scripture says, say to those who sit in darkness, come out, because there's true power in those words. There's power in the Word of God, and I often forget that. And so one of the great gifts to me is to have the opportunity to walk with people who are struggling in any variety of ways. I would much rather do that than try to figure out our email situation uh, or, <laughs> uh, which I've done little to nothing on. Uh, Josh has really carried that burden, and God bless him. Uh, I, administrative tasks, nickels and noses, keeping up with all that kind of stuff. I, it's, it's stuff you got to do, uh, or make Robbie do, or somebody else. Uh, and thank you, Robbie. He's a good man in that regard. Um, but, but, man, it's, it's an amazing thing to walk with people through the very difficult circumstances, and see the beauty of the gospel come to bear and be transformative. And so often, it takes years. It takes a, a, an inordinate amount of energy and time and effort, right? But I will pay that cost because I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I'll pay it a thousand times over until the day I die. And so often what I think is problematic for us is we're not actually participating in the story, right? So we're, we're failing to actually be encouraged by the very thing that would cause us to return again and again, even when it's messy and recognize that we are the people who are here to offer the opportunities of redemption and reconciliation, not make them happen. We don't get to do that. We get to offer as ambassadors, as priests, but with great power and dominion because we are a kingdom. And that kingdom has come and is coming and will come. And so my encouragement to you, if you are struggling to be like, yeah, I just don't really care about the end of the story a whole bunch, where are you, where are you stepping into it? Where are you cultivating to see the true power of Jesus to make all things new that begins between the now and the not yet and will be completed when he returns? And then what causes you to long to participate in the consummation? Like, what is it that draws you into the story? We're all, wi we're all wired a bit different. Um, you know, we all have things that we're passionate about in different ways. Um, and so I, I understand that we're not all called to the variety of different issues that are available to us within the context of the world. 
Some of you, it's a very, it's a, it's a beautiful vocational calling, right? It's your job. And that takes an, a significant amount of effort and energy from you. So you may not be going to the M&A disaster response warehouse. Maybe that doesn't interest you at all. Maybe that really interests you, right? Or, or issues concerned like First Care Women's Clinic or issues with the Women's Extension or any of the variety of things that we have available to us. Uh, I recognize we're not all interested in the same things. We're not all gifted in the same way. So if you're struggling with, hey, I don't, I don't, I don't know what I'm interested in. Well, let's talk about it. We have avenues. We have different ways in which we can help you discover uh, what it is that you're called to and to join in. Or it could be that you've just failed to see how what you're currently doing is actually pretty stinking redemptive. And there's a lot of opportunity right there, but you've lost sight of it because you, you, you've grown so familiar, right? We do that all. You kind of lose sight of what it is and how long things take. We have a very American view, like, uh, let's, let's clean this up. <laughs> I, I wish, uh, but that's not how it works so often in family situations. So I don't want you to be robbed of longing for the end of the story because you're not participating. Participate somewhere within your spheres of influence. Rethink it and let's, let's talk about it. Let's be creative in how we think about and engage those things. All right, if you would turn back to the text, let's look at verses five through 14 because worthy is a victorious lamb who is slain for the life of the world. Now take note of who it is that actually answers John's question because this is pretty important. And between, uh, I'm sorry, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. I want to pause right there. It's interesting. Why didn't the angel answer the question? It's worth thinking about. Well, remember who the elders were. As Chris told us, it was, there were 24 of them. And a lot of folks think that that's probably representative of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. So what was their job to declare this Always. That when the world goes, I don't see it. It was their job uh, to make sure that that message always got said. That to the world even, not just to John, weep no more. For the king has come. <clears throat> Let death and sin reign over you no more. For the king has come. The lion of Judah who comes as the lamb who is slain for the life of the world. And so it's a beautiful thing that, that you notice each person, each being, each creature has a part in this great worship service. And it was the elder's job to declare that Christ was king. And so he says, weep no more, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Both of those are Old Testament images. The lion of the tribe of Judah comes from Genesis 49, 9 and 10, which is the declaration that the scepter would never depart from Judah's line. And that there would always be a king uh, and so this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And then the root of David comes from, uh, among other places, uh, Isaiah 11, which is the declaration that there would always be a shoot that would come. Even if, even if it looks like the tree's been cut down, which if you read First and Second Kings, that was the whole point of the project that the world was doing. If we can just kill the lineage. So you remember even in the Christmas story, this is what Herod is trying to do. When he sends the wise men and says, hey, I want to worship this cute little baby. Won't you bring him to me? What's interesting is Herod may be one of the few people who really took seriously who Christ was. And so uh, we have the fulfillment of these prophecies. And it says that he is worthy because he is conquered so that he can open the scroll. So his conquering is what in fact declares his worthiness. It is not just some verbal thing. It's not just a set of obediences, but it's interesting is how in fact does Christ conquer after all? In his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in the fullness of who he is, the fact that he was perfect through all of that and that is imputed to us on our behalf, the fact that he could break the bonds of death and sin makes him worthy. And so he is conquered and is able to open the scroll and then John looks up and sees between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. Let me pause there for just a second. Where does this lamb imagery come from? This is from the Passover, 
right? And remember, Paul makes the connection in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb. That it would be him who would essentially mark us as redeemed. That that God's judgment would pass over us in the eternal sense. And his blood applied to us means that we do not have to fear the Lord from the perspective of judgment. We get to love him in awe and wonder. And so this lamb is standing among uh, the four living creatures and the elders before the throne. He's seven horns again. That's complete. Uh, that's the sign of completion in terms of victory and power and glory. He is the king of kings. And the seven eyes means that he has uh, the same attributes as the Lord our God. He is omniscient. He's able to see into all things in his divinity. That he has the spirit in him. He has the ability to serve his people in truth. And it says that this lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Who does that tell you who he is? He is God. So when he takes the scroll, notice worship breaks out again because they know what's coming. This is going to be put into motion. This is going to be executed uh, to completion. Redemption will come. And they, in their excitement, can't help but worship. The seals haven't even broken yet. And notice what they have. They have harps which means they were participating in worship, and they had these incense bowls full of the prayers of the saints. This is, folks have been praying for this for so long. I bet if we were confessional, too often our prayers lack any real power. We don't pray for the end. We don't pray for things like we, we, we are. We, we probably shoot a bit too low in this regard. I'm convicted of this deeply as your pastor. Too often, I pray as one who uh, doesn't expect a whole lot, one who believes far too little, one who's forgotten the fullness of the story. But praise be to God, that doesn't change the ending one whit. My weakness is not your encumbrance. My weakness doesn't keep the story from being told, and it doesn't keep you from flourishing in the beauty of the gospel. And amen. And so they begin to worship. And they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. Let me pause right here. If if you don't mind, flip to Isaiah chapter 42. This is one place that I thought it would be important for us to recognize the fulfillment of a prophecy and just the beauty of God's word and that so many folks had this and, and, and knew this and were looking for this. And what a gift. Listen to Isaiah 42 for just a moment. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. It's God talking about his chosen servant. If you're paying attention to our liturgy this morning, that's been the great emphasis. Christ is the chosen servant, the king of kings, the anointed one who has come to make all things new. And God says he puts his delight in him. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Let me pause for a second. What does that seem to tell you about this one, this chosen servant who is coming? How will he go about what he does? Justly and gently. He's not here to wreck shop or to to, uh, break people who have some measure of the flicker of the gospel in them that can be redeemed, that are of the elect. He knows our weakness. He's not here to exploit that. He's not here to to put us down for that. He is here because of that. He goes on. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. 
I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before, the, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the habitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stir, stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do. Do not forsake them. They are turned back, utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. So what we see is Isaiah 42 being celebrated as true. They sing a new song. And notice how it spreads even in this worship setting to all of creation. And they say, um, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So what we see here is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. This is what should have been the project all along, but like everybody who has ever come on the face of this earth, we are only concerned for ourselves first and foremost and then those who look exactly like us so that we don't get challenged or put out in any sort of way, comes natural to all of us. And yet the Lord in Christ fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, and you have made them a kingdom and priests. That's important. Kingdom means we have some measure of dominion. Now, some of you hear that word and you start thinking, oh, so we got the next election in the bag, whatever that means. I don't know what that means. Or uh, that it's purely political. Absolutely not purely. It doesn't not include some of those things that God in his great sovereignty and grace doesn't grant certain things to happen in certain times and certain places. But most importantly, we have dominion in the word of God. We have dominion in the declaration of reconciliation and redemption because there's power in the word. There's power in the king whom we serve. And too often, that is not where we place our confidence. That's why we don't evangelize, right? You could make somebody mad by telling them you love them, that you want to spend eternity with them. You could really make them mad saying something like that, couldn't you? That the thing that's killing them is killing them because it is against God's law and against the way that God designed his people. No, you don't want to go telling people that. You might make them mad. Because what people think of you is the most important thing in the world, right? I'm numbered among you. And so we forget that there's actual dominion. We are a kingdom that, that, that the keys have been given to us of redemption, to be in line with the finished work of Christ. And notice what it says also, that we are also priests. It means we minister to the hurt of the world. Do you understand how bad the world hurts when God's judgment is unleashed in any form or fashion? We're going to see it in chapter 6. We need to be ready to step in and minister to that hurt. Unlike so many who have, when something bad goes down, declares you got what was coming to you. That's not the way we minister. That's not the, the way to evangelize. We should minister to the hurt with the truth of the gospel as those who have power and are priests. That's all of us. That's all of our calling. 
And it says we'll reign on earth. So we don't have to fight for a kingdom. We don't have to declare a kingdom here. It's already been declared and is, and is unfolding as we go. Let's participate in that. And notice after this is declared of Christ beautifully, he says, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What a gift that now the angels are joining in the course. Notice how this is spreading throughout all of creation. This worship is beginning to take hold. And then it goes on, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, now this, what's in the sea? This makes Clay real excited that whale sharks will join the chorus of the great, you know, this, this thing. They're worshiping the lamb. But who sustains them? God does. Why wouldn't they join the chorus? And if they know to sing, why don't we? Notice what they sing, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is what Paul was talking about, Romans 8. All of creation longs to see the sons and daughters of God delivered so that it too would be delivered. This isn't just pie in the sky. This is, this is real tangible historical stuff. And notice, and the four living creatures you guys, everybody wonders about like, one of them's got like the face of a man, one of them's like a bull. What's that all about? It's just the, the fullness of the representation of creation. Even they join in and say, amen. And then the elders fall down and worship because worthy is the lamb who was slain. He, he has come. And so I love the way that Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, Christ is both the yes and the amen to every promise of God. So what we see here is the redemptive promises of God essentially being fulfilled in the crucified and ascended Christ. And that unleashes great power for the people of God. So it's, it's hard to give this any sort of linearity or time, but essentially this, this appears to be an event that's happening uh, somewhere near Pentecost where Christ has ascended and worship begins to break out because the Spirit comes, remember uh, what that means for us, and things are starting to happen historically as declared. They have been happening, but it, it, it's in earnest now. Things that can't ever be undone. Things that will challenge and change the way the world functions forever. So may we be those who join in this same chorus with how we live, how we worship, how we do what we do, that we would take seriously this time that we have this opportunity to, to be built up, cultivated uh, as ones who truly can resist in a way that could bring redemption instead of resist in a way that repels and repulses. Listen to what Graham Goldsworthy says of this picture. He says, Christian existence is lived out between the two realities of suffering and the kingdom. It reflects the suffering of the lamb and anticipates the consummation of the kingdom through the conquest of the lion. So just as Christ came as the lamb who slain for the world, the church has to reflect that mindset. Just as he didn't come with a sword in his fist, but a sword from his mouth, the word of God, we too take up the same means by which he used. The good news is we don't have to die as he did in the same way. Some may. There is genuine martyrdom that occurs in this world for the sake of Christianity and will as time goes on. But what we have is the opportunity to declare to a world that is, uh, that is longing as well, right? There's great longing in this world um, for things to be different than they are. And so we have an answer to that longing. We have actual power that can satisfy that longing in the person of the slain lamb and the person of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God the Father. So let me ask you a question. What worth do you ascribe to Jesus as the victorious lamb who was slain for the life of the world? And 
part of how you know what worth you ascribe, because too often, again, too often I think we are all about verbiage and not how that actually is lived out. Um, think about how you approach the things that are available to you, from prayer to Bible reading. I don't want you to feel, I don't want you to feel beat up here. But it is important that those things are reflective because they are the means by which he said this works. And it will work in this way. Not in every season, like you remember, sometimes the dry season is intended for your roots to grow deep. Anybody knows anything about botany? You got, if you water your plants too much, right, Jenny? They die. Or if you don't water them at all, I'm sorry, that's different. Uh, but if you water them too much, their roots will stay really shallow because again, they don't have to work to get to the water. We are kind of similar, right? Remember the parable of the soils. Without being challenged and stressed, our roots don't grow deep. Without those dry seasons where we have to say, where are you, Lord? <laughs> and have him say, I'm glad you asked and seen you in a while. Right? And how we approach worship, the, the, our recognition that we need to prepare, that, that each of the pieces of worship are intended for our good. Let me say this, attending three other churches in the last six weeks, um, we're not that bad. In a lot of ways, y'all get in here fairly quick and you're friendly. Uh, and maybe it's because the bald head thing and the intense stare that made them less likely to come and talk to me, but uh, don't let that worry you. Um, but, but what's our attitude? How are we making sure that we are, are, are ready and focused to be here? I love the fact that, that I don't want us to be the kind of church ever that's arrogant about our worship or that is arrogant about the fact that we, no one ever gets up to go to the bathroom or, or arrogant about the fact that any of these things, right? I mean, I, I want you to be human. I don't want us, we don't need snipers in the narthex to take care of some of this stuff. Uh, you know, but at the same time, are you... Are you in your humanity recognizing the divinity of Christ? Are you making sure that you are able to be present and to be uh, mindful of what we're doing here? I get it. The, the atmosphere doesn't exactly scream uh, worship and all that kind of stuff. So we'd like to have our own building to help do that. But again, you'll forget that after a while too. It'll just become part of it. And are we respecting the opportunity that we have for God to be in our midst and for him to use very ordinary things such as spoken words, little bit of bread and juice to do great work in our hearts and minds. So how are we preparing and participating? That's a good question. You ought to wrestle with it. If there's anything we can do to help you, we've provided online all of the things that are our liturgy. And so if you ever invite somebody, that's a good thing to help them go over and understand before they show up. Also in the bulletin, we have a, a quick breakdown of what those things are. Learn to participate. Grow in that. Struggle with it. I get it. Uh, like I said, I would struggle as you do. I just, I have to stand up here and like if I start getting distracted, it gets weird. If I run to the restroom real quick and leave the mic on, it's real weird. If I run out and just like grab a quick cup of coffee, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, like I don't have the liberty you do. So I get that it's easy for me to kind of press on it in some ways. But I was, I visited three churches in the past six weeks and had to do what you do. And, um, and, and, it, and that's a great thing for me to have to go through and be a part of. Uh, and so again, I don't want you to lose your humanity, but I don't want your humanity to define Christ's divinity. Should go the other way around. All right, what do we learn from Revelation, at least these two things? There's much, much more we could learn. We should yearn to know and participate in the consummation of the redemptive story. That should be our great longing. And then Jesus is the victorious lamb who is slain for the life of the world and is worthy of our worship. All of creation says that is true. And what a gift on a day on which we got to have a peak into the divine throne room and to see the lamb standing in the midst of the elders and the living creatures slain for the life of the world. What a gift that we get to participate in the Lord's table on this day as a remembrance of that event. What a gift that we get to have our faith nourished 
by the Holy Spirit and the finished work of Christ that declares, this table declares Christ victorious. This table reminds us that you are not stillborn, that you are not dead in your sins for those of you who know Christ as Savior. And so let me say, if you are visiting with us this morning and, or have been with us for a while and you're not a believer, don't partake of this table uh, better lunch, uh, hopefully, will be not a better. Uh, you can't really say that. Uh, a more, I can't even say substance. Never mind. Just let this pass, right? It, because, and, and what a gift that I, can, I wrestle to find the words to find something better than what we're going to eat. And so, uh, do remember uh, if for some reason you're visiting with us and you're under church discipline from your church, I don't know. That's the case, or you in and of yourself are wrestling with unrepented, undealt with sin. Let this pass uh, from you because you don't, again, you don't want to, you're going to need this someday. And you don't want to look down on it and you want to have it fail to nourish you and even be a curse against you. You don't want that. Uh, and so, for everybody else who knows Christ as Savior, who recognizes, yeah, I'm weak and He is strong, who recognizes, he reigns, I don't. That he's the center of the story. He is the point of the story for God the Father, and I'm not. For those of you who get that, take and eat. Be nourished in your faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, remembering what he longed for you to remember as most important of all. It's what he said to them on the night in which it was his last earthly meal with them before he would be transformed by the resurrection and the ascension. And he wanted them to remember that he, and he grabbed bread and he said, this is my body given for you. And what he was saying to them is, I give this substance for you. I give my very own flesh and blood for you so that you could be made whole, whole again. So that you would not be crippled by shame and guilt. So that you could enter into a grander story that never ends. And so, as you receive the bread this morning, if you would, hold it uh, until uh, we've all received and we'll take together as family, but meditate on the great gift of Christ as the lamb who was slain for the life of the world. The great gift that he came in gentleness and kindness and patience and took the stroke that we couldn't bear, choosing instead to use the word of God and not the sword of man and power to be worthy. Consider his worthiness and give thanks. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ alone is worthy. This redemptive story that we get to celebrate in this meal, in this table, in this tangible way is because of what Christ has done. But to not forget that it, it actually empowers us to then do the things, greater things than even Christ did per his word. That we would be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be uh, encouraged to share the gospel in word and deed, that we would want for others as your priests to know that they too can be redeemed, that sin doesn't have the final say, that death is not the final act. We pray that you would empower us in the glory of the Holy Spirit in Christ's name. Amen.